0: Church, it's great to be here in worship with you today, wherever you're joining us from. As Pastor John just said, we're going to be continuing our series, Living in the Eye of the Storm. And, you know, Pastor John talked about storms of stress last week, and this week we're going to be talking about storms of doubt. And doubt is something that we experience to a degree every single day. And there are even seasons where Our lives seem to be characterized by it. Heck, we're living in a season right now that I can only characterize as a season of doubt. You know, a global pandemic, an extremely contentious political season in a polarized society, all of those things certainly qualify. You know, depending on how the You know, depending on the election results this week, you may be feeling a great deal of doubt, um, perhaps even a little trepidation as we move forward. But today, what I want to do is I don't want to give you one more doubt to add to the list. You know, you can just turn on the news for that. What I want to do is I want to give you one doubt to set aside. That's what I want to share with you this morning. And to do that, we need to understand a few things. You know, as I was preparing the message earlier this week, it dawned on me as I was thinking about this sermon series, Living in the Eye of the Storm. Week one, we talk about stress. Today, week two, we talk about doubt. Next week, week three, we talk about failure. And here's what I realized that the storms of stress that we face can often lead to storms of doubt. And depending on how we handle those storms of doubt, that can lead us straight into storms of failure. Think about Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he was experiencing a lot of doubt over the events that were going on. Jesus had just been arrested. He was on trial, and he faced the very real possibility, the stress of the very real possibility that he would be put on a cross right next to Jesus. And so this storm of stress and storm of doubt led to a storm of failure when Peter denied ever knowing one of his closest friends, his master and his teacher. And so this movement from stress to doubt to failure, it's, it's very real. And we need, and that's why we're spending three weeks talking about it, because we're in a season of great doubt, You know, Max Lucado, in his book, In the Eye of the Storm, talks about something called doubt storms. Listen to how he defines this. Turbulent days when the enemy is too big, the task is too great, the future too bleak, and the answers too few. Do you feel that? You know, I I find that I can relate to those words. And maybe you're in a doubt storm right now. And you're trying to figure out a way to keep your head above water. Last week, Pastor John talked about Jesus' second most stressful day. His first, uh, first um, most stressful day being when he was put on trial and crucified. But we talked about his second most stressful day. And it started by hearing that his, his cousin and his friend, John the Baptist, had just been put to death by order of King Herod. Now, John was very special to Jesus, not just because he was family, not just because John was the forerunner of Jesus, but because John was one in whom God was working in incredibly powerful ways. But what you may not realize is that John the Baptist, this great example of faith, encountered his own storm of doubt. He encountered his own storm of doubt. And so before we learn how to face doubt over stormy waters, John the Baptist can teach us three key truths about doubt. And the first is this. John the Baptist teaches us that doubt emerges from your circumstances. If you have your sermon notes available or just a sheet of paper, jot that down. Doubt emerges from your circumstances. You know, as as we well know from Jesus' own experience, when we step out boldly for God, when we live out the gospel life, It's not always going to be embraced by the people around us. You know, John spoke the truth to power, and it got him in a lot of trouble. Check out the story here in Matthew chapter 11. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So, the scripture here tells us that John was in prison. I could imagine that he was staring at the walls across from him, wondering if this was it, reflecting on every moment that had brought him to that place. And as he heard about what Jesus was doing in the world, what once had been a certainty for John became uncertain. If Jesus was the Messiah, wouldn't things be different? And so let me explain what was going on with John, and this is something that we all go through. Now, imagine that the sum total of your life were lived behind a window. For the longest time, you could see very clearly out of that window, and you knew exactly what you were looking at. And then all of a sudden, a rock comes. The window that was once so clear that you could see easily out of is now cracked and broken. What once was clear has now become indistinct, and doubt starts to creep in through those cracks. Take a look at this image here. Uh, You see that white blob there in the upper right corner? Take a moment to see if you can figure out what that is. You know, when I downloaded this picture this week, it took me a few moments to adjust, to really see through the broken window, to understand that this white blob here is a parked car outside. Now, think about it this way. Has the car itself changed since the rock hit your window? No, of course not. The car is still in the exact same condition that it was in before your window was cracked and broken. It's still a car in its nature, but because of my circumstances, my perception of it has been altered. It's been changed. And right now, we happen to be seeing the world through the perspective of COVID-19, of a a worldwide pandemic. We're seeing the world through great socio-political upheaval. And this makes it difficult for us to see what God is doing in the world, how Jesus is operating. And this was exactly what John the Baptist was experiencing. It's what we experience as well as we observe Jesus from afar. Now, the second thing John the Baptist can teach us about doubt is that engaging your doubt builds up your faith. I want you to write that down as well. Engaging your doubt builds up your faith. You know, how did John engage his doubt? Well, he reflected on it in his cell. He observed where it came from, and then he sent his closest followers to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one that we've been expecting Or should we wait for someone else? Check out Jesus' reply to that question. Verse 5. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. You know, Jesus was pointing to what God was doing through his ministry as evidence of his identity. He was saying that, John, you weren't wrong. You were, you were right all along. He was saying that the, the, the hopes of Israel were coming about in their time, that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, and that no circumstances could change that. He also affirms those who do not stumble on his account are blessed. He's not saying that John the Baptist necessarily stumbled in doubting him. In fact, we could say that John the Baptist was faithful in engaging his doubt by sending his messengers to Jesus to ask that question. In fact, I found a a quote written by Philip Yancey that I think speaks to this very truth in a very powerful way. Listen to these words. Doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith, and I know no better way to treat a skeleton than to bring it into the open and expose it for what it is, not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. So, church family, is your faith growing up around your doubts? think about it. Despite what may be going on in the world, despite the fact that your window may be broken and cracked, are you committing to wrestle it out with God? Though my window may be cracked by my circumstances, though I'm not so sure of what I'm seeing anymore, I'm still willing to wrestle and cling to what was once so clear, even in this uncertain time. And that leads to the third thing that John the Baptist can teach us about doubt. Your doubt isn't a moral failing. I want you to hear that carefully. Your doubt isn't, is not a moral failing. Too often we allow our doubts to lead us down a path of stigma and shame. You know, we, we feel uncomfortable sharing them with others, and they go unaddressed because we believe that it's wrong to doubt, that it's somehow a failure of faith, you know, we'd rather pretend that our doubts don't exist than face the truth that we have doubts, and, it, and, and we don't want to admit that we failed in our faith walk. But what if that's a faulty way of thinking? What if, what if your doubts really is the hard structure around which your faith is built? I think we can find a lot of encouragement in what Jesus said about John in verse 11, when, once he sent John's messengers away, listen to this. This is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, which is kind of funny, it's among those who are born, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what's, what's he saying here? Well, first of all, the first part of the verse, I would say that that's really high praise. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that John is the best person that I know. Of all the people that I've ever met, of all the people that I know, he's the best person that I know. And that's high praise. But don't mistake what he says in the next part of the verse as some kind of a backhanded compliment. You know, Jesus isn't saying that, well, let me me say it like this. What Jesus is saying is when he says that John is the least in the kingdom of heaven, it's not an insult. It's not a backhanded compliment. It's just merely an acknowledgement that John hasn't yet entered into glory. John didn't have all the answers, and neither do we the side of heaven. Think as a child how you were filled with wonder at all that your eyes could see. Wrestling with questions and doubt is part of you and part of me. It's how God has wired us. And it's not something to be crushed. It's not something to be be ignored. It's something to acknowledge and to honor. In fact, Selwyn Hughes wrote how those who doubt most and yet strive to overcome their doubts, listen to this, turn out to be some of Christ's strongest disciples, Those who doubt most and yet strive to overcome their doubts turn out to be among Christ's strongest disciples. So church family, if there's one doubt you can set aside right now, it's your doubt about doubt. Don't let a false sense that your doubt is a moral failing stop you from engaging it and building up your faith around it. It's not a moral failing. It's part of the natural human experience that we have together. And my hope is that what we learn from John the Baptist should help us to face doubt over stormy waters. And that brings us back to Jesus' second most stressful day. You started hearing about it last week from Pastor John. And so it starts again with Jesus hearing about the death of John the Baptist, the very same person we were just talking about. He was killed by order of King Herod. And as if that wasn't stressful enough, Jesus, at that moment, Jesus' disciples pick that moment to return home from a successful ministry tour, and they're excited. They're sharing with Jesus everything that God had done through them, but they they don't come back alone. They come at the head of, practically at the head of an army, and so Jesus tells them, let's go off to a quiet place together but they can't shake the crowds. And so after a while, Jesus has compassion on them. And then he brings about a great miracle. You know it as the feeding of the 5,000. And it's, it's one, of the, uh, one of the only miracles that's told in all four of the gospel accounts. It's a great story. And not a very bad way to end a stressful day, right? Well, wrong. Wrong. A little-known fact about the feeding of the 5,000 comes out in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 15. And what happens is that after Jesus performed the miracle, Scripture tells us that the people wanted to forcibly make Jesus their king. They wanted to forcibly put a crown on his head and put him at the head of their army. You see, Jesus gave them what they wanted, and now they wanted to use him for their own purpose, for their own agenda. And if the people had their way, a rebellion against Rome and the religious establishment would have started right in that place. And it makes sense, doesn't it? By nature, we tend to want to squash those who believe differently than we do, whether politically or spiritually. But dominating the competition never solves a problem. The only thing that solves the problem is a heart transformed by grace. Jesus was never called to be an earthly representative of one nation. He was called to be the king over all creation, bringing about restoration, bringing about reconciliation, bringing about healing for all people. And that isn't a work that can be forced by human hands. And so what does Jesus do? He sends his disciples in a boat across the lake, and he says to the crowd, clear out and go home. And then he goes off into the hills by himself to pray. Now, I want you to think just for a minute about the storms Jesus was facing on that day. You know, he faced the storm of grief with the news that John the Baptist had been killed. He faced the storm of ambition when his disciples came back from a successful ministry tour. He faced a storm of unmet needs. Of, of, of great need when the crowds became hungry and there was not enough food to go around. And he faced uh, a massive storm of unmet expectations when the people eyed him with the intent of making him king and putting him at the head of their army. When it rains, it pours. And I'm sure you've had days just like that. The truth is that storms are certain in our lives. If Jesus experienced them, then you can be certain that we'll experience them as well. So the key question here is, how can we face doubt over stormy waters? And what I want to do is I want to share with you five ways that we can navigate stormy waters as we walk alongside Jesus on his second most stressful day. And the first way to face doubt over stormy waters is to start praying before the storms touch down in your life. Start praying before the storms hit your life. Jot that down in your notes. You know, you need to get in the habit of prayer, not just praying when your life's already falling apart, but praying as a regular practice. So, look at how Jesus navigated his storms on that day. We're in, we're in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Listen to this. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he did what? He, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Each of us need time alone with God in every season, both good and bad. Our practice of prayer grounds us in the reality of God's presence for us and with us in every situation. It's something that Jesus did well to model to his disciples. And to their credit, they were curious enough, they were intrigued enough to ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. But they hadn't made it yet a habit. Did you notice that Jesus, despite everything he was going through, despite all the storms we just talked about, he was calmly laying those things out before his heavenly father. He wasn't panicking. Why? Because he had established a habit of prayer before the storms touched down in his life. Ironically, as Jesus went up to pray, a literal storm was about to sweep across the surface of the lake You know, based on the different gospel accounts, this is what I think was going on here. Many scholars believe that the feeding of the 5,000 took place probably right around here on the eastern part of the Sea of Galilee, right up here. And so Jesus sent his disciples across the lake to Capernaum, which is over here kind of on the northern, northwestern part of uh, the lake. And so, Jesus stayed behind right here in the hills, and he sent the crowds away, and they scattered in all directions. And Jesus was up there in the hills uh, where he could see clearly over the surface of the lake by the light of the full moon. And so, what we believe is that Jesus likely planned to meet up with his disciples by walking around the lake and meeting them back in Capernaum at a later time. He just needed some time alone to himself. But in just a short time, the disciples were caught up in this storm across the lake, and they were wondering if there would even be a later for them to meet up with Jesus. So the disciples were not prepared for the storm that they were about to face, and it drove them to their wits end. That leads to the second way that we can Face storms over uh, that we can face doubt over stormy waters, and that is to trust that no storm can separate you from Jesus. No storm can separate you from Jesus. You know, I, I want you to hear the next part of this story. Verse twenty-four. This is this is incredible. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from lands, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. You know, I can just imagine The disciples straining their way through the storm, looking back in the direction where Jesus was in the hills, praying to God. You know, they'd been in a storm for hours, practically from nightfall until about three in the morning. Did you notice that? Nightfall until about three in the morning. That is hours and hours and hours on that lake fighting against the wind and the rain. And as much as they tried, as much as they looked back at the shore, they couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't find him. And yet Jesus clearly saw them across the lake. And yet he waited. Why do you think Jesus delayed in going out to them until about three in the morning? You know, it kind of reminds me of the story of Lazarus when Jesus received news that Lazarus was sick and that he was probably going to die. And yet he waited deliberately until after Lazarus had died to go to the home of Mary and Martha. It wasn't because Jesus didn't care. It wasn't because Jesus wanted to see his friends suffer. I think it was because Jesus knew the storm had something to teach his disciples about facing their doubts. And this brings us back to the example of the broken window from before. Just because your view is obscured, just because your window is cracked, doesn't mean the nature of what lies beyond it has changed in any way. We may feel that the storm separates us from God's promises, that we're all alone in the boat struggling against the threatening and buffeting waves of our time. But that isn't the case. And because Jesus came in a way that they didn't expect, the disciples almost missed the answer to their prayers. So long as you've cultivated a habit of praying before the storm, encountering and living through the storms of life can help you to trust that no storm can separate you from Jesus. And here's the proof. As Jesus comes walking up, on the water in a way that strains our sense of reality, of of reality. And maybe that's the point. Maybe from our limited perspective, reality as we know it isn't really reality with a capital R. By doing the impossible, Jesus gives us courage to believe the absurd, that we have a God who walks with us in the midst of our storms. Now I want to share with you the third way that we can face doubt over stormy waters. Don't leave your community behind in the boat. Don't leave your community behind in the boat. What do I mean by that? Allow Peter to demonstrate. Verse 28. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went out over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? Look, I'm not going to say what just happened in that passage wasn't incredible. We got to admit, this is one of the coolest Peter moments in the gospel. But perhaps he was getting a little ahead of himself, like he did... The time that he told Jesus, I am willing to die with you. A good question to ask is, why did Peter get out of the boat? He said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you walking on the water. And Jesus said, well, it is me, so yeah, come on. And so what I think we see here is an example of Peter trying to engage his doubt by building up his faith. It's no different than what John the Baptist did, but in this case, Peter failed. He experienced failure when he took his eyes off Jesus. And Jesus isn't trying to shame Peter when he asks, why did you doubt me? He's simply asking a question to get Peter to reflect on his movement from stress to doubt and to failure. Notice how As soon as this moment is over, Jesus leads Peter back to the boat where the other disciples remains, much safer than Peter had just been moments before. It was as if Jesus was telling Peter, I can sustain you even when you put yourself in a precarious position for me, but your faith is grounded here in the boat. That doesn't mean we're not challenged to get out of the boat and onto the mission field, but consider for a minute what the boat represents your community, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. What may be difficult for us individually is easier and God-honoring collectively. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, a brother of Christ came to me and confided in me a, a struggle with doubt, a doubt storm that he was experiencing. And it had to do with chronic pain and excruciating pain that had something to do with his medical condition. And my brother in Christ often lay awake at night wondering why God wasn't answering his prayers, why a God we confess as good was allowing so much suffering to enter into his life. I got to admit, I didn't really have a good answer for him. But what I did have, I gave to him. And I told him that sometimes when we're experiencing doubt, when, when we are going through a lot of pain and suffering and trial. Sometimes we need others to stand with us and to carry our faith for us in a time when we're too weak to carry it for ourselves, until the day when we're able to take it back up again with a new perspective. The day did come when my brother in Christ, when his doubts receded, and he was able to take up his faith again with a new perspective. I want to also share with you another example that really touched my heart. It was in uh, William White's book, Stories for the Journey. And he told the story of a seminary professor named Hans who had just lost his wife. He was in this place where he couldn't leave his house, and he had no desire for food anymore. And so the seminary president and a few other professors came over, and they invited Hans to share his heart with them. And Hans heartbreakingly told them that, I can't pray to God anymore, and I'm not even sure if God even exists. The seminary president listened quietly and then said, well, then we will believe for you, and we will pray for you. And every single day from that moment on for the next several months, the, the seminary president and the other professors came and they met with Hans and they prayed for him every single day. And one day, they came to Hans's house, and Hans said to them, "Today, you don't need to pray for me anymore. Today, I would like for you to pray with me." You see, Peter, when he stepped out of the boat, he left his community behind. He was Vulnerable, he was alone and in a more precarious position because of it. Peter wasn't wrong in attempting to engage his doubt, but his approach and timing were off. We're called to get out of the boat for Jesus and with Jesus, but not without the community to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. Now, the fourth way that we face doubt over stormy waters is to worship through your doubt. Write that down. We worship through our doubt. Check out what happened as soon as Jesus and Peter entered the boat together. Verse 32, when they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Up to this point in the Gospels, the disciples had never called Jesus the Son of God. They called him Master. They called him Teacher, but never the Son of God. What changed here? Well, I think it's because Jesus saved their lives. When we're face-to-face with the one who saved us in our time of need, it, it shifts our perspective. It changes things. Suddenly, the wind was gone, and all was still across the lake as if the storm had never been there in the first place. All that remained was the community there in the boat and the one in whom their hopes rested. You know... It certainly wasn't the end of the troubles that Jesus and his disciples would face. Many storms still were poised to strike them. But here's the thing. They learned in this moment to worship through their doubt, even with the water still freshly soaking their clothes. And you know what I love about this story the most? That it uniquely exists as an eye in the middle of the storms Jesus was facing We talked about his second most stressful day earlier. When Jesus and his disciples take to land at the end of our story, they're met with another storm of great need. But they do so having come through this terrifying storm on the Sea of Galilee and out the other side. And they understand what they're called to do no matter what storms they face. They're called to do this keep being the church. That's what we're all called to do no matter the storms we face keep being the church listen to this the end of the story verse 34 when they had crossed over they landed at gennesaret and when the men of that place recognized jesus they sent word to all the surrounding country people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed church family ministry never stops And there's always another storm just around the corner. And we're always called to be the church of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It would be nice to stay in the boat, to never leave it. But we're called to step out of the boat. We're not called to live there forever. And after being grounded in the eye of the storm, we have a job to do. We're called to enter the next storm in faith, to walk on waters of doubt like Peter, but together. When you love God, love others, and live out the gospel life, you're making a profound and incredible and bold statement in the face of every storm this life can throw at you. Our mission as the church stays the same no matter who's in charge of our nation. Our mission as a church stays the same no matter whether or not we're facing a global pandemic. No matter what is going on in the life of our nation, no matter what's going on in our individual lives, people will still go hungry and thirsty, still need clothing and shelter, still need a shoulder to lean on and an ear to hear. No matter what, we're called to set the captives free. This gives people hope. It opens their eyes to new possibilities and a better future. And as we keep being the church, we'll guide them through the storm. So church family, hear these words that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in their own time of testing, in their own time of trial, in their own storm of doubt. So church family, in a world of doubts, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Do you want to know why we never give up, church family? Because we fix our eyes on the perfecter and finisher of our faith. We don't focus on the storms of the moment as if that's all there is for us. I'm not saying that our storms aren't formidable, that they aren't real, but they're somehow less real than the hope people have had for thousands of years. As hard as they are, these storms will pass. And instead of focusing on these things, we build up our faith around our doubts. We fix our eyes on Jesus and on God's unending love. That's who we are called to be. That's what we're called to do no matter what we face in this life. And in a world of doubt, that's one doubt to set aside. Amen. Let's pray church family. God, we are so grateful for your love and your grace in Christ Jesus. God, you have given us an incredible and powerful and amazing gift. A relationship with you that never ends. God, we just want to pray for our church right now, for our nation, and for the world. God, we know that you are at work. We know, Lord, that we have a job to do, that we are the church of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, that we are called to love God, love others, and live out the gospel life. Lord, help us to understand that our doubts are not a shameful thing, that they're not a moral failing and that we can build up our faith around our doubts if only we give them air, space to breathe, if only we have the conversations together. God, let us love one another by having those important conversations about our doubt. Lord, let us take the example of Jesus and the disciples on the water as a way of moving forward in a season of great doubt. Lord, let us look to you, fix our eyes on you as we walk on those shifting, threatening, buffeting waves. Let us be reminded that we are in the presence of the Almighty, the one who is king over all creation, not one leader for one nation, but king over all creation. Your work cannot be rushed. It cannot be forced, but we can enter into it, and we can be the church of Jesus Christ together no matter what it is we face in this life. So God, thank you for speaking to us through our doubts. Thank you for helping us to worship through our doubts. Thank you for teaching us and guiding us and encouraging us this day. We thank you, Lord, for every good gift that comes from above. And we pray all of these things with gratitude and great expectation in the holy and awesome and powerful and amazing name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people say, Amen.